what starts as a lustful affair in English suburbia becomes a love triangle, climaxing in a moment of murderous passion. A strict husband, his beautiful wife and her young, smouldering lover. She was very sexy and the English are not good with that at all. The narrative was this wicked older woman had lured this rather innocent young man into her under her evil spell. She, the wife, becomes the most notorious accused woman in Britain. But she didn't hold the dagger. She killed nobody. You can see how people had no doubt whatsoever that hers was the hand that metaphorically guided that knife into Percy's neck. If she's convicted, she'll face the gallows. The evidence against her? Simple love letters. But are they a manifesto to murder her husband? Or innocent scribblings of a woman fantasising over her boyfriend? The letters heave a kind of erotic frustration, which is, I imagine, was quite intoxicating. This joy in writing, this joy in writing another life where Percy didn't exist, didn't mean really she wanted to kill him. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'm making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more, or get in touch, subscribe at robertmurphy.substack.com and please do rate and review the podcast. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is called Love Triangle, Fatal Attraction. We're in Britain in the early 1920s. The First World War had been won a few years earlier. Families are recovering after nearly a million young men had lost their lives. More, many more, have returned home wounded. The country's adjusting to life after this international catastrophe. But adjust it does. And we find ourselves in a very respectable new-build neighbourhood just east of London. It's called Ilford. Laura Thompson is an author whose book, A Tale of Two Murders, documents what is about to become one of Britain's most compelling and infamous trials. She says the crime took place in a district more used to home comforts than homicide. 
murdering Ilford would be like murdering, I don't know, Surbiton or something today. It was such a shocker. It was always called the Ilford murder because of the almost the piquancy of murder taking place in this unlikely setting and of a, a you know a domestic tragedy and all this sort of thing. In this mix was Edith Graydon, beautiful, attractive, and very modern. Some men didn't like that. A lot of women didn't like it either. You know, in a way, it's a it's it's a class story. This I think she belonged to a class where she was what they used to call respectable. You know, the respectable classes, sort of middle, lower middle, working. You know, that kind of all these silly things that we go in for in England, but we we do. And she was extremely aspirational. She is an every woman, I think. She's any woman who's tried to get on in the world, and she worked she was she had what today would be called a career she was like a manager in a a millinery warehouse in the city of london she was ahead of her time and i think she was caught in a time in a very odd way because we think of the 1920s and we think oh flappers bit of emancipation skirts getting shorter women smoking women bobbing their hair blah 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 and I almost feel a couple of years on, she would have been understood better. In June 1921, Edith had known her husband, Percy Thompson, for 11 years. She'd been married to him for five. While Edith was a modern woman with a well-paid job, she got paid more than Percy. She bought half their house, which was unusual in this day. She was into the theatre and dancing and having a good time. He was cut from a different cloth. They were not a good match. Percy, he does come across as very unappealing. There's no doubt about it. You just think, why? Why did you marry him? Why didn't you walk out on him? They married in 1916. He'd managed to avoid being sent to the front um, by slightly dodgy means. You can't really blame him for that. She married him when she was 22, which then was not abnormally young. Um, it's Again, it's that pressure of class. And in many ways, she was very conventional, Edith, and not very daring in some ways. You know, you, she was very daring in her letters, but not so much in her actions. And you wish she had been more so. There is evidence that he did uh, hit her. But that, again, was completely ignored because that would have been sort of almost par for the course. He said he was going to break her in. You see, today, of course, that reads, oh, my God, who is this monster? But then, you know, standards for male behaviour then were a lot lower. Into this mix comes a young man. Edith Thompson would start having sex with Freddie Bywaters in the summer of 1921. He was just about to turn 19. She was eight years older than him. Some would later think that she had in some way groomed this young man, but it wasn't that simple. He was worldly wise, very handsome. Well, he was extremely good looking. Um, you know, he looks like he's got this air of this rather Rupert Brooke air about him, but a bit thuggish. So, you know, not so bad. <laughs> he was young, though. Well, I mean, he first meets 
Edith when he obviously it's a long time before their relationship when he was just 13 years old yeah when you think of it that way that the day she got married because she got married just around the corner from the the little house the family home which she always thought of as home um and you can imagine him sort of playing football in the street almost while the wedding party goes back to you know for the for the do afterwards but when he then went to sea quite young and when he came back even though he was only what so this was 1920 so he was uh 18 because he'd been abroad and seen the world she never went beyond the Isle of Wight and you know he did seem to have an air of experienced masculinity about him really uh beyond his years I mean today we think of 19 as a kid but it it wasn't then you know people left school at 14 15 you know the world was completely different and you died at in your 60s or whatever you know it was a different time frame what wasn't great on Edith's part was that there's a we think of this story as a triangle it's actually a, a square because Edith had a younger sister, Avis, who looked like her, but without the sort of fatal attraction. Um, and she was madly in love with Freddie Bywaters. Avis was mad. Avis always hoped she would marry Freddie Bywaters. So in a way, Edith nicked her sister's boyfriend, in a way. It all, um, it all kicked off. They went to the Isle of Wight in 1921, um, Percy and Edith, Freddie and Avis, and on the Isle of Wight, you know, the two good-looking ones sort of gravitated together and he declared himself to Edith and went back to London with Edith and Percy leaving Avis on her own in the, this wretched boarding house. And then he became Percy in oh, Percy. You can understand why he felt like a fool because <laughs> he invited Freddie to be their lodger because he thought he was a fine, upstanding young man. And Freddie, who did have this, um, well, demonstrably, had this thuggish side to him, he jumped ship and lost his job, and Percy helped get him another job. So he didn't repay that terribly well. And when he was lodging at the, the their, their quite large house in Ilford, the inevitable happened. And in June 1921, Edith and Freddie had became lovers. There was this sort of idyll when she was off work. Um, Percy was going to work. Freddie didn't have to do anything. They had this. And she reverts to this idyll continually in the letters. Do you remember the day we went to Kew Gardens? Do you remember the day we were at You know. And then in August... Percy suddenly clicked what the hell's going on here. I don't think he realised the whole of it, but he realised, you know, that, that, that there was something going on and ordered Freddie out of the house. And that's where the, there was this huge fight. And Edith, he did um, physically assault Edith. That's, there's evidence for that because the sitting tenant in the house saw that her arm was black with bruises. But in the world of 1922-3 people would have said well quite right look at the way she was behaving freddie went to sea around the world for months at a time and to whichever port he arrived 
there would be a letter waiting, sent from his married lover in Ilford. This was no ordinary, if you like, functioning extramarital affair. Edith and Freddie saw each other for only 14 weeks over the next 60. They had sex on three, possibly four occasions. Instead, their relationship was played out in a set of long-distance love letters where Edith indulged in highly charged language, passion, drama. She even wrote of them having a suicide pact. They did have this thing of, oh, if, if we're still in this position in five years' time or something like this, we will kill ourselves. Edith constantly refers to this. There is no truth. It's a literary business, really, reading these letters of Edith's. But my interpretation of that suicide pact is she didn't mean it, and he knew she didn't mean it. What's the difference between what she genuinely means, do you think, and what, what she's just saying there just for effect, to try to, to bind herself more to this, this, this young, hot man? Well, you've asked the, the question there, really, Rob. I mean, what does she mean? What doesn't she mean? Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever know. She is trying to bind herself to the hot man. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And the next point is the crucial one. Later, a jury would have to decide how seriously to take it. Throughout Edith's letters, she talks about poisoning her husband, even asking Freddie if he can get hold of something. But like a lot of Edith's letters, what she writes could be interpreted several ways. The first talk about poison is really almost beyond a doubt to do with her trying to bring about a miscarriage because she had managed to get pregnant and by him and almost certainly he, he procured something that, that got rid of this baby. Now, some people have said throughout the, the letters that she was always talking about trying to self-abort and that she couldn't say that in court and therefore she got tangled up in her because it would have been so damning, you know. Then she starts talking about giving something to Percy something nefarious. She talks about breaking up light bulbs and putting them in his food, which is clearly fantastical. She talks about, um, will you bring me something? Will you bring me something from abroad? If you read those letters from spring 1922, they, they don't read very well. I do wonder if she just put a tiny little drop of something in. You, you, we, we don't know. But whatever she did, it didn't kill him. Therefore, it, it, it was an irrelevance, other than as potential grounds for incitement. You can understand how, at that time, people read those letters, because the fact is, he was murdered. He did die, just not in the way that Edith describes. But if you have the view that she is the one who's misbehaving, which she kind of was, and um, if you take into account the fact that he was murdered, you can see how people had no doubt whatsoever that hers was the hand that metaphorically guided that knife into Percy's neck. But then what happened was that during these leaves, they were these sort of snatched 
times together. We don't know that, that, you know, it would have been really difficult for them to have a sex. It would have been difficult just to find somewhere to do it. But the letters heave a kind of erotic frustration, which is, I imagine, was quite intoxicating for him. Freddie may have been intoxicated, but he managed a moment of sobriety. A few months before the murder, he had a change of heart about his older lover. If he had stuck to his guns, three lives would have been forever altered. Come June 1922, he did try and break it off with her. He really did. And this is what's so painful, really. Because although he was writing to her, it was far less often. And he would sort of say, can't we just be friends? Can't we? Something in him was, you know, realising this is pointless. I mean, this is just utterly pointless. Um, his own mother was, he wasn't speaking to because she had said, break this off, it's madness, she's trouble. Um, and uh, he must have known she was right. But she wasn't having it, Edith. She just pulled out all the stops to get him back. So during this very long sea voyage between June and the end of September, she's just writing to him, pleading with him, trying everything. Not much about poison, really. Uh, just me, you, how can you sort of thing. Much more that. You know, the, 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 the odd thing about, oh, have you ever tried? Oh, have you ever heard of digitalis or whatever? But it, 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 it all feels a bit let me just chuck the kitchen sink at this guy. In the battle for Freddie's heart, the battle between lover and mother, Edith won. He returned to England and to her arms. She got him back. So from the end of September to the beginning of October, between those times, they'd been seeing each other constantly. They were always having tea together near her office. They did manage to have sex in uh, the local park. And that I think was pretty seismic for both of them really um, but then she was going out with Percy she went out with Percy Saturday, Sunday, Monday Tuesday Yes the Tuesday, October the 3rd, 1922, Edith and her husband Percy had been to the Criterion Theatre in London with her uncle and aunt. They had a lovely night watching a farce called The Dippers. If you like, it was a comedy before the tragedy. Everybody said what a pleasant evening, um, how happy they seemed together. After getting the underground back to Ilford, Edith and Percy walked from the station towards their home in this middle-class suburb. It's a, this sort of long, straight walk home. A figure came from the shadows. People nearby heard a woman scream, a piteous voice, Don't, oh don't. Percy was jumped. The struggle between the two men was short, but long enough for one to be left with a zigzag of cuts across his blue suit. Percy Thompson lay dying. There was this long trail of blood, 44 
feet it measured and uh, lots of superficial wounds to his to the front of him the fatal wounds were the shoulder and the neck almost as though he just finally cracked freddy just lost it when police arrived Edith Thompson was in a state of shock. She said nothing to police about her husband's killer being her lover. He had melted away, escaped the scene. He was due to leave on a boat that following day, which would take him to the other side of the world. And she, well, she was staying quiet. The initial belief was that this was a kind of stranger murder. Someone like a war veteran who'd gone off his head. Initially, they were very sympathetic to her. And because she, she sort of screamed and there were quite a few people around, I suppose, going back from the theatre. And, um, you know, they attested pretty much universally to her absolute hysteria and distress. Uh, and she um, did, in fact, say to her mother, I did love him, really. But soon, Edith this young, beautiful, unfaithful wife who broke the 1920s mould became the focus of the detective's attention. She had enemies, and Percy had friends and family. In the Sort of in the middle of the night of the 4th of October, yes, the big guns started coming in from Scotland Yard, and a lot of people didn't like Edith. And she wasn't the sort of woman the English like, I think, really. She didn't fit, she was too sexy, and she didn't know her place. They sort of started to take against her. They had a feeling that she was hiding something, although they didn't know what. And she was hiding something, of course. She was hiding the fact that she knew the identity of the man who'd done it, because she knew that once Freddie's name came out, the whole edifice might crumble. So, although lying to the police is always regarded as particularly heinous, doesn't matter what they do, she, um, the, the, the fact that she lied in the initial stages completely understandably was always held against her. Her brother-in-law, who hated her, absolutely hated her, uh, very straight-laced, um, and he... Gave, gave, gave the police the name of Freddie Bywaters. And from then on, it was just a series of, it was just sort of waiting to happen really. But what she didn't know was that Freddie had kept her letters. Um, and they imagine the horror, the horror of that. And Freddie's mum was very quick to give those letters to the police. Yes, because she... I mean, I almost feel more sorry for her than anybody, Lillian Bywaters, because she had tried so hard to stop him doing it, you know, associating with Edith. He, she knew that it would end badly. And she did, yes, they, they went to her house in Norwood and she took them to a, a suitcase because she obviously thought, she's going down as well. <laughs> Eventually they found uh, in his ship's cabin a load of letters because initially they knew that they were lovers, but they did—they still didn't really have anything against her. But it was when they found the other letters with all the references to poisoning and what have you, that was when they had the case. Freddie Bywaters was picked up by police later that day. He'd made no effort to remove Percy's bloodstains from the coat he was wearing. Police had two suspects, a motive, opportunity, 
and then they used every trick in the book to try to get confessions. I'm sure now it's completely illegal what they did. They kept her at Ilford Police Station. She had no representation. She had no, all she had there was her mother. They just waited until they had enough. They shocked her by letting her out of her room and knowing that Freddie was coming towards her from the other direction and that sort of broke her down. Edith Thompson and Freddie Bywaters were both charged with Percy's murder. Edith was also separately charged with soliciting to murder, inciting to commit a misdemeanour, administering a poison with intent to murder and administering a destructive thing with intent to murder. In the meantime, Percy's remains had been exhumed and no trace of any poison had been found in them. Not a good start for the prosecution. The trial, which would begin at the Old Bailey on December 6, 1922, was set to be the biggest court showdown of recent years. The stakes couldn't be higher. If Edith and Freddie were convicted, they wouldn't face a jailer. It would be the hangman. This was box office stuff in Britain. It was a tabloid sensation because they were so physically attractive. People queued all night at the Old Bailey. Homeless people would keep queue in order to be able to sell the place to somebody. Um, And the places went for as much as five pounds. And it was just massive. The Sunday Express did this whole sort of pamphlet. I mean, you've never read prose so purple in your life. British newspaper readers lapped this case up. The love triangle, the young handsome killer, his older sexy lover, it all seemed to spark something in the country's consciousness. She touched all these nerves and she was very sexy. And the English are not good with that at all. And she had this young man of 20, and the age gap, even now today, I can you can imagine the prurient, you know, ooh, the cougar, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the narrative was this wicked older woman had lured this rather innocent young man into her evil, you know, under her evil spell and caused him to do something that he would not otherwise have done. Two things happened. The prosecution lawyers won the argument that Edith and Freddie's letters should be read in court. Her deepest fantasies were now a public and legal document. They seemed damning. And Edith felt her last chance was to give live evidence herself. That didn't go well. She crumbled completely. Freddie was very brave. And if you read his testimony, it's so impressive. No, I didn't say that. I said this, don't twist my, not don't twist my words, but he's more or less saying that. He, he wouldn't be intimidated. But she, she just fell apart completely. Understandably, because she hadn't, in my view, done anything. And you, to have your words read out, which you wrote in a kind of moment of silliness, passion, erotic compulsion, whatever, to have those read out at the Old Bailey and to have some bullying man say, now, what did you mean by that? Knowing you can't really explain because you can't interpret those letters literally, which is what they did. And there's me, on the other hand, saying, 
But in another way, she is guilty in another way, because if she hadn't written them, I don't think any of it would have happened. But if you believed she'd been poisoning Percy against the evidence that there was nothing in his body, then I suppose you would believe the whole thing. And even people who were sympathetic to her thought she was guilty. They thought the case had an inexorable logic about it. The judge is summing up, which is one of the most disgusting things I've ever read in my life, the leaps of just, just whole lacunae in his logic, in his, you know, this is what they talked about the last time they met. What was he, a waiter there? I mean, nobody knows what they talked about the last time they met. Very, very few people could move past that narrative. It was a very satisfying narrative. They liked it. Including women as well. There was huge sympathy among the woman folk of England or Great Britain for him, for Freddie, but from her perspective, not at all. No, no, horrible, horrible. Um, I mean, his team were, were very much in this narrative. You know, he's a fine lad. You know, she led him astray, blah, blah, blah. There's something in that. There is something in that. But nevertheless, you know, what he did was uh, pretty pretty horrendous. He, he was liked. His looks, his demeanour, the way he tried to shield her in the witness box. And, of course, she, you know, this dark, sultry, you know, dangerous creature. Women absolutely hated her. Um, it doesn't reflect very well on women, I'm afraid. Rebecca West, the great feminist novelist Rebecca West, said Mrs. Thompson was a shocking piece of rubbish. You know, um, it's, it's, it doesn't... It doesn't show this country in a terribly good light, I'm afraid. It shows a prurient, puritanical side that I'm afraid I do think is in us and that she absolutely touched those nerves. And the jury, of course, uh, uh, were persuaded with this narrative as well because even though there was never really any proof that what she wrote was anything more than a fantasy, she, you know, she didn't carry the knife. She wasn't there egging on uh, Freddie to stab her husband. Uh, but she was convicted of murder. And just, just try and put yourself in her shoes at that time. Oh, it's too, it's too terrible. It's too terrible. I mean, even, you know, this sounds ridiculous to because it didn't happen to me, but writing that book, the, it was just absolute agonising. The terrible nightmares I had just thinking about her. They had hopes of the appeal, which was dismissed in a kind of jocular fashion by these awful, awful judges. Um, and then I think she thought she would be reprieved. And the letters she wrote from Holloway are very, very beautiful. Um, ma masterly, really, very different. None of that fervid quality when she writes to Freddie. Um, really quite noble, wonderful letters. Um, and she... They still tried to write to each other because the prison authorities wouldn't pass anything. I mean, there was no end to their cruelty, really. These are your words. Uh, is just in the hours after she was convicted, um, as she was taken down, there was an inhuman wail like that of an animal caught by prey in the night. For a moment, nobody knew where it came from. Like everybody else, Edith heard it. She 
was making the sound herself. When her family went to see her in her cells before she was removed to Holloway, she took hold of Mr. Graydon's coat with both hands and said, take me home, Dad. It's just this bit here of the book is so affecting. It's so, so affecting. That line, that just kills everybody, doesn't it? Take me home, Dad. Because that's all it had been, really, this kind of, as I say, this kind of mirage, this erotic fantasy, this joy in writing, this joy in writing another life where Percy didn't exist, didn't mean really she wanted to kill him. Um, And then this... um, I, I imagine she did think she could just go home and it would all just not be true. Uh, in some ways, it's very recognisable still, I think. The, 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 the dislike that she evoked in people, I think, would still be the case today. I can imagine her as a hate figure on social media. The way in which the law can suddenly just become, no, all exit doors are shut. You're not getting out. You know, we know how that feels today. Um, when the forces of law become politicised or driven by something more than just equity, um, which is what happened to her. At nine in the morning on the 9th of January 1923, two sets of gallows were ready. One at Holloway Prison, where a heavily sedated Edith Thompson was carried to her fate. Half a mile away at Pentonville Prison, Freddie Bywaters, who was still just 20, walked calmly to the news. Outside both prisons, crowds gathered. They couldn't see what was happening inside. These were private executions, but people felt they needed to be part of this. It's all quite recognisable, and this kind of fascination and delight from the public in her destruction. But then, of course, when it was all over, I I imagine quite a lot of people thought, gosh, wow, what was all that about? Why did we want this woman to die so much? Because there's no doubt about it, although it took a long while for the death penalty to be, um, to to end, um, as we know, it's not till 1964, um, and, and women were hanged after Edith, it, it seemed like the beginning of the end for it somehow. You know, I think there was a lot of guilt. I hope there was. <laughs> I really hope there was. I hope those authorities felt pretty awful afterwards. Afterwards, eight more women would be hanged, the last being Ruth Ellis in 1955. The death penalty was finally abolished the following decade. Freddie Bywaters was buried within Pentonville Prison. Edith Thompson was buried in Holloway Prison in 1971. She was reburied in a single plot with the remains of two other executed women. And in 2018, following a campaign by her executor, Edith Thompson was reburied again, this time at the City of London Cemetery alongside her parents. Percy Thompson's remains are buried in the same cemetery as his wife, who was convicted of his murder. You've already got this incredibly complicated, almost 
Macbeth, Lady Macbeth thing going on. Who is more guilty, Macbeth or Lady Macbeth? She tells him to do it, he does it. Um, so it all became a question of how you interpret these letters. But of course, what almost blinds you is the horror of this woman being executed. Um, I mean, Freddie Bywaters as well, you know, hanging in 20-year-olds is not, I hope, not good in anybody's eyes. But, but she hadn't physically done anything, but she was hanged. So, of course, that is what I couldn't get over, really. And I still can't, actually, is the truth. She just haunts me. And I think she does anybody who's made a, a study of this case. If you want to see pictures of Edith and Percy Thompson and Freddie Bywaters, head to robertsmurphy.substack.com. There's also a link to where you can buy a copy of Laura Thompson's beautifully written book, A Tale of Two Murders. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy. Thank you.